Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. I am PG, Dr. Shot. I am the Dr. And I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. Yeah. And welcome to the Paving Dr. Shonda podcast, all things related to the black culture. Hello, everyone. You are now listening to the Dr. Shonda show now on Fox Soul. And also you can listen to the audio on Revolt Podcast Network. I am here with a legendary journalist today. Uh, we have Mr. Torre here, and we are going to be talking about the psychology of storytelling. So behind the journalist, behind the music industry vet, we are going to get into the psychology of it all. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much for having me. TikTok brings people together. Yes, that's one of the beautiful things about social media, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm so appreciative of your time. I know we don't have much together, but I do want us to hop into things. Uh, I, I was telling my sister before we started, so it's rare that I'm ever nervous on my show because this is like my show, but you're a legend. And so <laughs> you're, and so you're nice. A, yeah, and you're an actual journalist. So uh, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my stuff. So just don't be too hard on me because I'm not a real journalist. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Awesome. So can you tell us a bit about what had you starting in journalism? What had me starting? I mean, I think there was a sense of I need to use my life to help black people in some way. I felt very tangibly the people whose shoulders I was standing on, the people who had fought, agitated, died, all those sort of things for me to be able to have the opportunity to go to a good school you know, to get into an, a career I wanted to get into, not have to deal with overt segregation and these sort of things. So I had to do something. I remember being in college and thinking, wow, it would be really cool to be in the CIA, but I don't think that that would have an impact on Black people. Now, in retrospect, that could have a tremendous impact on Black people. But at the time, I was saying, I don't think that I can have an impact on Black people doing that. I want something that can do that and I fell, to, I fell into media and journalism as a way to help talk about what's going on with Black people in a way that would help Black people. And it certainly is helping us all. It certainly, uh, I would say, paved the way for a lot of journalists that we see today. And uh, you mentioned how the journalism that you do is because you're, you're standing on the shoulders of like some of the previous giants. Who were some of the past writers and giants that you looked up to in, in terms of journalism? Well, you know, when I, I mean, so many people, when I came to New York, Greg Tate was already a legend. Um, you know, I was able to 
become friends with him and talk to him about writing a lot. Nelson George, I talk to a lot about writing. You know, you remember reading James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison and, you know, Joan Didion and Vladimir Nabokov and Salman Rushdie and Susan Sontag and other people, Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston and, my God, Toni Morrison was like a god in my yes. mind. And yes. it's like everything that Toni chooses to do is the right thing. So just try to follow what Tony does in, and like, I would read the sentences in with a microscope to say, okay, so she did this in this sentence, this is right. So how do you be more like that when you write a sentence? I mean, she's, she is the ultimate for me. Yeah. I, I think we, we all definitely look up to uh, Miss Tony Morrison um, because of the, the profound work that she's doing and regarding like your background, you've interviewed some amazing people from, Kanye, Jay-Z. Uh, I talked a little bit about, um, while we were on the phone, how I'm a huge fan of your podcast you. and the stories that you tell. Of course, the, the stories that you tell related to some of these people that you were able to interview from the princes to like, you know, even the people that you have now. Uh, who would you say are some of your favorite interviews that you, you facilitated with? I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to choose. It's hard to choose a couple. I mean, you know, I had fairly extraordinary conversation i think with zadie smith on my podcast once she's a genius um you know i remember talking to tony braxton about singing again on my podcast and just to talk to her about singing and like about the day you recorded unbreak my heart which is one wow. of the greatest records of the last you know couple of decades yes. she's like well we sang it once and then we sang it one more time just to just just, you know, just for a thing. But we had it the first. You sang it straight through, like, yes, straight through one time. That's what you're, I mean, you know, those sort of moments you live for. Um, so many people, I mean, talking to Andre 3000 about yes. his record, yeah. um, you know, his jazz record. But there's so many, so many great, so many great fun ones. I was listening to the, uh, the episode you had with Prince. So you were talking about your experience playing basketball with Prince. Can you can you like bring that to life for us for a bit, like to the viewers who may not have been for able to sure. hear that story? I mean, this was the later period of Prince's recording career. So he was then going by a symbol, right, which was unpronounceable. So media would call him uh, the artist formerly known as Prince, right? But the symbol was, there was no way to pronounce the symbol. So it was meant to throw all of us off, right? And like, how do we refer to him? People would say, well, if you're in the room and you need to get his attention, but like, I'm in the room with him. You never need to get his attention. He's <laughs> always the center of attention. I interviewed him. It was frankly not a very good interview. I had a cover story. You know, it takes a lot of talking to get a really good cover story. And so I said, you know, can I email him some more questions? I emailed him 10, he answered seven of them. So he chose the ones that he wanted to answer. The 10th question was, will you play basketball with me? And he wrote back anytime brother, right? Like it was an A, not an E. And I was like, oh my God. And I also <laughs> took that seriously. And I'm like, well, you said anytime. So when my photographer went to Paisley Park to shoot him for the cover, I showed up with the photographer with a basketball, like, what's up? You said anytime, <laughs> here I am, let's go. I wasn't really thinking that anything was gonna happen. It was just sort of like, 
let me just knock on the door and see what happens. And eventually he said, get the box of sneakers. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then he was in a black scoop neck top that like, you know, your girlfriend might wear and black bell bottom pants, same. And, you know, white and red Nike Air Force, uh, Air Force One high tops. And we're playing ball, we're playing one-on-one. -on -one. And then we got into two-on-two -two and playing one-on-one -on -one with him, the mask comes off. And I can wow. see really like who he is as a person. And he's, you know, he's, he's boyish, he's competitive, he's yeah. aggressive, he's filled with self-confidence, you know, and I could see all those things. And, it, and it's exciting sort of like compete. And he was like, I am trying to defeat you, right? Like it's, you know. He was so serious. We, he was serious. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a play game. It was like, right. I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> and we played one-on-one for like 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, we played two-on-two, -two, which was Prince and... I, me, against uh, his keyboardist, Morris, and uh, my photographer, and um, Morris Hayes. And um, my God, it was so exciting to play yeah. with him. And he's, he's a very good basketball player. You know, the form on the shot and the way he moved, he looked like a Steph Curry. I'm not saying he's knocking down shots like that. And wow. Desmond uh, said the same thing. That he that the form the way so if you want to imagine what did Prince look like as a ball player, he, the shot looked like Steph the way that Steph Curry shoots. So he looked like he had had training. He looked like he knew what he was doing. He's moving without the ball. He's dribbling the right way and through the legs and all these sort of things. So he's a ball player. He played in high school. He was serious. He played throughout his life. You know, so he was serious about it. He would play on tour. So we're playing two on two. I grew up in the '80s watching Magic Johnson. So whenever I was a point guard, it was always with the no-look passes, right? That's the thing. So Prince makes a move down near the basket. He's open, more open than he even realizes. No-look pass right over to him. He does not realize the ball is coming. Now it's moving toward his nose. And I'm thinking, oh, oh wow. my, in milliseconds, oh, my God, I'm going to break his nose or something. Oh, my God, I need to tell him that the ball is coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I yell out, Prince. But then it's like, oh, my God, you're not supposed to call him Prince. I'm going to get kicked out. So it's more like, so, but it, so all this is happening. The ball wow. misses his nose, flies out of bounds. He goes and gets it. And he's walking back, holding it and pointing at me and giggling. And I'm like, <laughs> what's so funny? And he goes, you didn't know what to call me. And he <laughs> loved that confusion. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime 
and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Right? Because it was the symbol era, right? So, like, what am I supposed to call you? But he, like, really? He's like, I really don't care. That's to mess with the record labels. You, you call me Prince. You call me Purple Rain. <laughs> you call me whatever. It's all good. Um, so that, you know, so it's just this extraordinary moment yeah. where you got behind the mask to see, like, who you really are. And that's what right. you live for um, as a storyteller, to find out who your subject really, really is. It's amazing because even listening to this story, I'm over here imagining uh, like the prince with these bell bottoms on playing basketball with you. And even with you telling the story, like you do an amazing job humanizing these individuals that the industry has uh, dehumanized in some ways. And I think that's that's such a gift to be able to do. Well, you know, from the beginning of my career, I always wanted to be black centric. And I think black creators have to be really thoughtful about where am I being white centric in my work down mm. to the words you choose and the perspective That's you good. choose. Once somebody handed me a line they wanted me to read that talked about when Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, that was very controversial. And I was like, um, hello, um, I remember my father and his brothers talking about that. It was not controversial to black people Black people were like, go ahead, like, do you like, you know, white people is controversial for. So, you know, so I'm like, I'm not saying that. Right. Because yeah. my work is to be uh, black centric. So, you know, just thinking about how do I center black people and talk mm -hmm. about us in a human way? I also remember early on reading the other white people's work in terms of writing and uh, uncovering people like Snoop Dogg or whatever. And there was a otherization that would happen. And this sense of like, this person, Snoop or whoever, is an alien. And let me explain how alien their world is. And I'm like, that's not alien. Like, that's right. like, you know, that's part of my world. That's part of my cousin's world. That's part of my yeah. uncle's world. Like, what are you talking about? So I would be able to meet Snoop, Q-Tip, whoever, my early people. I'm like, we're peers. And I see you as a peer and I write about you as a peer and not about some weird other from the land of poverty and the projects. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my God, look how they tie their shoes. And like, oh my God, like these are human beings who've yeah. got a chance, you know, based on talent. Let's talk about that. So I was always sort of mm -hmm. focused on how can I tell the story in a black centric way that does not look at my brothers, my sisters as aliens, because we're not. It doesn't participate in the otherization that white uh, media sometimes puts on black people. For sure, for sure. And I, I wonder, and you, you kind of alluded to this already, but I wonder like what a part of your uh, black identity, like how has that influenced how you tell stories, how you ask questions? Wow, my, what, how my black identity affects how I, uh, I mean, you know, I think that when we're having an interview, we can have a conversation. Yeah. And I want it to feel like a conversation. And sometimes you just make a statement, you know, you're, you know, your, your, your new album is fantastic, right? It's great, whatever. You're a great singer. And the person will take that where they want to go with it. Well, I, my mother was a great singer in the house and I mimicked her little and that helped me grow, right? And I would have never known to ask about your mother's relationship to your singing, but 
but I just made a statement and let you go somewhere with it. Now you can't do that every single time, right. but I think sometimes an interviewer can just make a statement and let the, let the subject respond to it and see where they take it rather than tagging it with a question which narrows mm-hmm. where they can go with it. But look, you know, I genuinely think that I am one of the best interviewers um, in media today, but the yes. best interviewer living is Oprah. So if you want to know how to do an interview, watch Oprah, you know, talking to, you know, Harry and Meghan or whoever, you know, the old Oprah, the new Oprah. She is an extraordinary interviewer. And quite often she asks very short questions. You know, what do you mean? Can be a fantastic (laughs) question. I think sometimes nervous interviewers, I'm not saying you, will ask three, four, five sentence questions. Yeah. Which is not necessary. Right. Right. Like let the, get it, get the ball back to the other person. Right. right. Like, like ask a, an, in, a short intuitive question. Even Oprah's big on like, how did that make you feel? And like, mm-hmm. that can be such a brilliant question. Yes. Yeah. I notice how like oftentimes when people ask me, um, you know, you're a psychologist. How did you get into this industry? A lot of people don't realize, like, when journalists are asking questions, y'all sound like therapists a lot of the times. Mm. Like, the way you formulate questions mm. and keeping how, it very concise. How did that make you feel? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Tell me more about that, that's, right? That's what, what was Who going through you? your mind? Who exactly. hurt you? <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, you know, I have a list in my mind it's gotten a little fuzzy over time of you know the people i made cry and i'm not trying to make you cry yeah but sometimes you want to cry sometimes Mm -hmm. and sometimes just being silent and letting the moment linger will make you cry i remember i had we had a we can't call him a 9-11 survivor but this was a firefighter who was supposed to be at the Trade Center on 9-11. He had something else that he had to do for his family. So his friend took his shift, and he died. Now, mm. he came on, our, on wow. our, my show when I was on MSNBC, and there was a moment where I asked him something about, like, basically, you know, how bad do you feel about all this? Knowing, obviously, he's going to say, I feel horrible. And, like, you know, you probably want to let people know how bad you feel. Because that is part yes. of your grieving process. And you don't want people to think, like, you're okay. Like, I feel horrible. I take care of this man's family. I feel tremendous guilt. Like, you know, but, like, how bad do you feel? And he was talking and kind of trying to hold it together. But you could see that, you know, he was kind of losing it. Wow. And he took a pause. And that is the moment where most people in social situations – would save you from yourself, would interrupt, change the mood and get Mm -hmm. you. But I'm doing journalism. I'm doing media. And I had a co-host who wanted to jump in because the impulse is to save him from crying on television. And I'm like, don't do anything. Everybody stay still. And I didn't say anything. And that tipped him over into crying. And like, he did not embarrass himself, but he wanted to cry and to have this public mea culpa and to show people. And it was a really beautiful, poignant moment. And the person who survives basically 9-11 should 
be allowed to cry on television. I mean, yeah. like that is a real, you know, but like there's moments when you can like, let show me how you feel. And then as the interviewer, get out of the way, because the feelings don't, it took me a very long time to realize this. The feelings are not immediate. The feelings mm-hmm. take time to come up. Something happens. Yeah. It could take 90 seconds for the feeling to really come up and like, you know, put itself on you to where you can name it and you have to feel it. So like, you gotta give people time sometimes and not just keep moving through, but like watch them and how are they responding to things that you're saying. And I I think that's a a perfect segue into like, we're talking about the psychology of journalism, black journalism specifically. Um, I wanna know more about like the emotional experience even for you like in moments like that and creating safe spaces for people to tell their stories. I wonder like, you know, the, the types of emotions that you experience when doing that. I mean, you think about the emotional honesty of it. You think about giving them a space <clears throat> to be honest. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes among black people, we want to, you know, have a stiff upper lip and not, nothing bothers me. And like, right. you know, everything rolls on my back. And I think in the last 10 years, we see more black people saying, hey, I go to therapy and it's cool. Like, hey, like I am trying to be emotionally intelligent and like that is cool and valuable, Um, you know, and like giving people the space to normalize crying on television, you know, but a lot of times it's about when I see myself in your shoes, right? Like I think it's important don't look at these stars as stars. They don't, they can't deconstruct their image for you, but like they are a person, they are a person who goes to a studio maybe, right? Makes movie, television show, music. And then that is, that goes out in the world. That's their Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's all work. But what would you do if you were in their place? Uh, a long time ago, Remy Ma uh, was put on trial for shooting somebody in the stomach. Somebody who she, <clears throat> who she said had stolen many thousands of dollars out of her purse right, that, at night. Wow. So, you know, I'm like, did you, are you afraid to go to prison for this? And she's like, no, very stuff. No, I grew up in the system. I ain't scared of no prison. Okay, mm-hmm. tough. Now, I had recently had a child and she had a young boy. And, you know, my child was not even a year old, but I'm like, to not see a day of their life would be like insane to me. And now I'm like, yeah. oh, you're a parent. And you might go to prison and you might not be able to see your child. Like, and I'm thinking, well, you would be sad to miss your child, right? Because I'm like, that's just a human connection. I'm not talking to a star exactly. parent to parent. Right. And I remember she was like, you ain't going to have me crying up here on BET. <laughs> and I didn't say anything for maybe 10, 15 seconds and like let it set in. And we're not moving on from yeah. this until you give me a real a real honest reaction. And then she let out a tear and she's like, okay, yeah, that, that would be terrible. And like, you're just being real, just yeah. be real. Let's just be real with each other. Don't pretend, don't bother me. It's gonna be fine for me. It's gonna be fine for him. Like, 
No, there's going to be some emotional work for you to do to get through this situation. And that's fine. And normalize that because we are filled with trauma, right? Past trauma, like trauma that we've acquired through our own lives, our friends and family's lives. We need to be able to talk about this, right? And not suffer in silence. And I think that's a part of the the work that you're doing. You're allowing people to be able to openly share their experiences without feeling the need to inhibit and to to suffer in silence, uh, which is something that we've normalized in our community, unfortunately. Um, I know we're we're approaching time, but I, I do have a really quick question that I want. Well, it might not be quick. You Let's let me it. know. Let's try it. <laughs> okay. All right. So this infamous interview with R. Kelly, right? Yeah. There were there was a, a lot of different um, a, a lot of people you know still talk about that interview today. I even remember seeing a parody of it on the Boondocks. Like that's sure. just how relevant Wait, a it was. A parody of it on and, the Boondocks. Yeah, so they they asked them the question that you asked on the Boondocks about the yeah. I don't think I saw that. Really? Really? I saw. Okay, I maybe saw Aziz, it could have been I saw a different Aziz person. And sorry, talk about it. I mean, I've seen okay. other things, but I don't think I saw the Boondocks one. It could have been a different cartoon, but I know there was somebody did a parody of it. Love so that. I'll have to fact check. Please, that. yeah, well, send it to me if you see it. Okay, I, I want to see it for sure. <laughs> I got you. Um, I wonder. So, in our community, we have a tendency to protect individuals who are like high profile, right? And sometimes to our own detriment. I wonder with that experience and you kind of exposing this exploitation uh, happening in the music industry, was there any backlash that you experienced and any like emotions that you experienced as a result from that? No, I mean, you know, I I didn't, you know, look, that was, that was the first truly viral and we didn't use that word at that time moment of my career of my life. Like after that aired, I could not walk down the street without somebody saying, oh my God, you're facing the R. Kelly. I mean, it was like every uh. single block, somebody was like, yo, you're facing the R. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, nobody was, nobody ever said to me, you should not have done that. Okay. Um, you know, I think people deeply understood R. Kelly's kind of a monster and somehow he's getting away with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, that guy right there just just exposed him. I mean, you know, it was, it was a crazy moment because, you know, I asked him, I was talk. we were talking about underage girls. And I was trying to get him to respond to that notion. And he kept in his, and he would receive the question and be like, 14, 13, that's disgusting. What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're, what we're talking about is 15, 16, but you keep using underage to like be like, no, what are you talking about, right? I don't like underage 14-year-olds. Um, so the big moment there was like, okay, let's have it out. Do you like underage girls? Now, and then his crisis manager came running in from the side and said, no, 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 you can't ask him that. And he said, no, no, no. I want to answer this. So then the guy sits down. But I'm thinking he keeps messing with me on the notion of underage girls. So how can I be more specific, right? Than un- and I realize in the milliseconds that we're going, I'm really like, teenage is more specific. We cannot mm-hmm. debate 
on what the meaning of teenage is, right? He was debating on the meaning of underage because it is not sp as specific as teenage, right? So if you watch really closely, I start to say underage and at the last second, I think like the U starts to come out and then I'm like, teenage girls. And, that, and that's where he's like, and that was a softball in my mind. Yeah. I'm like, so the follow-up's going to be a little bit harder, and then we go follow-up from there, and then I'm going to have to let it go, right? Otherwise, you're going to walk out on me. So I was just ramping up with, like, a nice, easy softball. Do you like teenage girls? <laughs> well, how old are we talking? Like, <laughs> What? That's really a cut-and-dry type of... It, it's so simple. <laughs> and, the, and the face that I made was like, you failed the basic softball. Yes. But let me not make a face that's like ah so that everybody <laughs> in the room knows you just messed up um but you know some of our friends on tiktok are pointing out that you know 10 20 30 years ago it was not uncommon to hear male singers put in a song yeah she was 17 yeah backstage underage yeah she looked like karis one had a song about I thought she was 21, but it, or something. I thought she was 18, which is also young, but turns out she was 13. Like, I didn't know. Like, there's this, uh, this is a not uncommon theme, uh, you know, that from a previous generation. Yeah. Um, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that's crazy. That, that's wild. That's very yeah. wild. Now I have to go back and listen to some of these things. Um, but I, that's even more of a reason why the work that you're doing is so imperative because. Not only are you helping to expose some of these things, but also, uh, like we said, humanize people. Like yeah. people are flawed and bringing this, these things out. I do appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you so much for having me. You're one of my favorite creators. So I appreciate that. Thank you. And you're one of my favorite journalists. And we're going to vote for Torre for the NAACP Image Awards. So Thank make you. sure. Yes, of course. Can you let the viewers know how to vote? Yeah, um, it, on the NAACP Image Awards site, you can vote. My podcast, Being Black, the 80s, talks about black political issues from the 80s through the lens of songs from the 80s like Fast Car and Fight the Power and Straight Outta Compton. And so it's an extraordinary look at what it was to be black in the 80s. And we're coming back with Being Black in the 70s in a couple of months. Wow. Awesome. Well, congratulations again. I appreciate your time. Listen, uh, soulmates, you guys can catch this show every Thursday at 9 p.m. You can also catch the audio version on Revolt Podcast Network every Wednesday. And don't forget, you have the power to create the emotions that you want to experience. God bless. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba.